This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to maybe the biggest holiday of the year. Happy National Mint Chocolate Day. I've had my celebration planned for weeks. I'm going to eat all my favorite mint chocolate treats all day long. Speaking of treats, how about getting your budget in order? It's a stretch. Just roll with it. Today, we welcome the woman who paid down $215,000 in student loan debt using zero-based budgeting, Cindy Zuniga. Plus, how are Americans doing at retirement saving? We'll find out from the Director of Retirement and College Leadership at Fidelity, John Boroff. Of course, we'll still toss out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky caller, and I'll amaze you with some of my delicious candy-themed trivia. And now, two guys who probably should stay away from my chocolates. Hands off, guys. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Divide and conquer, as I always say, OG. I'll distract him. Dis- I was going to say, I'll distract him and you go for the candy. <laughs> and, then yeah. we'll, and then we'll split it. Two for me, one for you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to National Mint Chocolate Day. I am Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And what a holiday it is. And to celebrate, as Doug said, Cindy Zaniga coming down to the basement, OG. We found her on Good Morning America. Maybe we'll ask her some questions about... Uh, Going on that show too. Can you imagine Good Morning America calling us? Nope. <laughs> I cannot imagine imagine can't, that. Can't imagine that. If we wanted some to hire somebody, maybe to help us get on Good Morning America, we'd probably go to Indeed. Thanks to Indeed for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, and then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash SB. Great Wednesday on tap. We've got Cindy Zaniga. We've got John Boroff from Fidelity. We got another headline first that's pretty interesting, so let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines. Our first headline comes to us from thefinancialbrand.com. Fintech adoption in North America lags global acceptance. Did you see this piece? I did not. 
This is by uh, Jim Maros, co-publisher of The Financial Brand. He writes, while the adoption of fintech services has skyrocketed globally, adoption rates in Canada and the U.S. are some of the lowest in the world. Is this good news for legacy financial institutions or a warning sign for the future, he writes. Over the last several years, the awareness and usage of non-traditional financial services has risen exponentially across almost all regions of the world. As fintech firms have matured from small specialized startups to include global organizations offering a broad array of financial services, customers are increasingly trusting those relatively new organizations to hold funds, process transactions, and provide credit and offer advice. According to the Global Fintech Adoption Index 2019, issued by Ernst & Young, adoption of fintech services is doubled every two years from 2015 to 16% in 2015, 64% in 2019. For this study, a fintech adopter is defined as somebody who's used two or more buckets of such services, since this indicates a habitual change in behavior. Why do you think that is? Why do you, I, I mean, I feel like everybody's got a smartphone and we're all watching it to watch cat videos. Why aren't we using fintech as often as they are worldwide. I don't know. Do you think it's a little bit of that, uh, what we were talking about from Monday on the, I, I don't want to have all my stuff out there in the interwebs. I, I want to have some privacy. I want to have, maybe I have a little bit of uh, shame around what I've done so far or, or not. I'm not sure. I do find it kind of interesting. People talk about like the security of, their information, security of their bank accounts and stuff like that, but then also won't do very easy security things like two-factor authentication, you know, and have passwords that's like password one, two, three exclamation. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm really scared about the bad guys getting my stuff, but I don't want to use the tools that that help me that can help prevent it because that's too much of a pain in the butt to get a text message and have to put in the code separately well what's funny is as we interview these companies on fintech friday they're all using bank level security there's a company out there called plaid which uh Mm -hmm. they work with many of the big banks plaid's the same stuff i mean these these fintech firms are using i actually think i've got a friend from uh, kenya who talked about the incredible difference I mean, obviously not just in the culture, but also in just the amount we're marketed to. He said, there are things I feel like I need in the United States that I never felt like I needed before I got here. <laughs> like all of a sudden I got to have my latte in the morning, right? I got to have this. He, he goes, just the sheer amount of marketing that hits me. He goes, you know, he's been here for 20 years and it doesn't seem like a big deal anymore. He goes, but when I first got here, I felt like I was inundated and he was just thinking about it before he told me the story like a year ago. He said, uh, "He said, but I think about now versus 20 years ago when I got here, I'm marketed to a lot more all the time now. And maybe it's harder for these fintech companies to push through, you know. to Harder to stand out. Yeah, to reach you on an emotional level. You know, and you think about changing your banks. Somebody was saying this the other day that, it, that banking is really sticky, you know. Oh, it's super sticky. It's funny because I, you know, you would think, especially as I am broadcasting this to at least five people that are all money nerd people, you look at something like your savings account and you have your emergency fund and it's got $20,000 in it. And you say, well, obviously you want to have that money earning interest. 
right? Obviously, you want it to be in a position that it's easily accessible in case of an emergency or an opportunity. But by the same token, you want it to be earning some cash. And the best rates go in these days, point and a half, 1.7, somewhere in that range, right? And every single week, I talk to people who have tens of thousands of dollars at your major brick and mortar companies. And I'm going, you should really check on, you know, go to Magnify Money and look at these top tier organizations that are all FDIC insured, all offer online access, all are liquid, but are going to give you a hundred times better return than the big giant bank down the street. And they go, yeah, I know. Uh, uh, I'll get to it. But I got all and these going, subscriptions what, what? there. It's such a, you don't have to change. No, I'm saying just keep your checking account. No, I get it. Yeah. Most people these days are using credit card points anyway. And, you know, and a lot of their bills are getting hit their credit card and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you can have a, you can have your checking account. Well, what if I need to cash a check? Really? When was the last time you cashed a check? <laughs> you take a picture of it with your phone because you don't want to go cash the check. You don't want to go to the bank. You don't want to take time to do it. So I think, um, inertia maybe is probably the biggest thing, you know, out of all of that. It's like, I got to learn a new thing. I got to learn a new technology. I don't know. Have you written a check yet in 2020? I feel like I have. I've written uh, one. I had a contractor came to the house and I just grabbed my checkbook. I'm like, well, this yeah. will be the easiest thing instead of taking out a, uh, I asked him if he had square or some way for yeah. me to pay him using then my card. No. And he, he kind of looked at me like I was from the moon. I'm like, all right, I'm writing a check. Fintech adoption, it says, anemic in the U.S., 46% of people have adopted fintech. Canada's 50. In comparison, fintech adoption in Russia, 82%. Mexico, 72%. In the U.K., 71%. In Australia, 58%. Far exceeded North American adoption levels. Of course, in Russia, in Russia, it's because you know that the hackers already got your info because it's your cousin Lenny <laughs> Who already knows everything about that. Well, I also wonder in some developing countries if it's a higher adoption rate because they don't know any different. You know what I mean? Like the traditional brick and mortar banking, you go to the bank to cash your check and the way that your mom and dad and my mom and dad did it Saturday morning, you'd go wait in line at the bank to get your, you know, like that didn't exist in some developing countries 40 years ago. Only technology has since started that. Well, they talk about these older Rust Belt manufacturing firms having all these legacy costs, right? I built these huge machines that cost me millions of dollars. I have to keep trying to convince people to use this versus something new. But I think there's also, to your point, legacy mindshare. I remember when uh, Carol Rellini was on talking about uh, how banking is built. She was talking about the speed of banking in Africa is so much quicker because of the fact that there isn't all that legacy banking stuff. So to your point exactly, hey, people are going to are going to Venmo money back and forth very quickly because of the fact that it's what I grew up with. And they're not and the banks aren't doing themselves any favors when I can Venmo you a thousand bucks instantaneously. But if I go to deposit a check from you for a thousand bucks, they're going to hold on to it, you know, for three days just to be sure. It's like, okay. It is amazing. Cheryl, for a new business venture that she's doing, wanted to open up a home equity line of credit, which I like too. 
uh, having that available, you know, as a uh, extra line of defense. So she decided to do it through our local credit union, which I generally like. At the end of that process, OG, never again. <laughs> it took forever forever for something that we interview these fintech companies all the time. These companies do things so much more quickly. And our credit union was just mired in stupid old ways of thinking. Like just really, it it took her almost a month to get her line of credit open, which is ridiculous. Just absolutely ridiculous. It seems like you should be able to do that in three days. We do these companies like Lightstream that sponsor the show that say, hey, you know what? We'll check your credit and bam, you could probably have money today. And I'm like, okay, it doesn't need to be today. If I need money today, then I probably need a better foundation for my financial future. But, but a week, maybe? Is it some of it, is some of that the fact that it's uh, like, like regulations are in the way, do you think? Maybe that, something tied to your house that you've got to have a certain amount of cooling off period. Yeah, but there was other things going on. You know, Cheryl told him 15 times, I'm interested in this. Joe's not. Guess whose cell phone they kept calling. Even <laughs> yeah. after she told them three times not to call me. <laughs> That's that same like, is your husband coming to uh, sign the paperwork too, ma'am? Yeah. It's like, uh, that would be. Uh, No, uh, because I'm a person and I can do it myself. And speaking of signing the paperwork, because it's our house and we're both on it, I went to the signing. The paperwork we had to sign, which, by the way, is regulation stuff. The number of things I signed that were not adequately explained to me. Now, don't get me wrong. I know what I'm signing. I used to read this stuff for clients all the time, but I also know I'm sitting in a seat where a lot of people don't know what I know. The amount of times it was just sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. Boy, all of these damn forms that supposedly protect us that we hurry through are just a bunch of cover your butt stuff. I mean, just a bunch, because almost none of it was explained to me. And the stuff that was explained was the stuff that makes the, the banking system look good. You know, like the banker totally knew there were 15 things on this one page and he would point to the one that's easy and go, here's what you're signing here. I'm like, no, I'm also signing this one over here. But I just want Mm -hmm. to get, you know, it was a generic commodity transaction to me. So I wasn't going to belabor the fact that this dude is totally skipping over some pretty important stuff. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. I think you do yourself a disservice by not uh, at least looking at fintech. And saying, is there a better solution out there? Because, man, some of these founders we have on Fintech Friday doing some great work. In our second headline, Fidelity is out with their biennial retirement savings assessment study. And for once, looks like we have some good news looking at the numbers. Here to help us dive into it is John Boroff, Director of Retirement and College Leadership at Fidelity on my dad shortwave. Hey, John, glad you could join us. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. Well, let's go through the numbers. You guys use a system around colors, like a stoplight, red, green, and yellow? Yep. And the good news is that this year, America's retirement score is in the green at 83. What is the red, green, yellow? Let's lay this out for people. What does that mean? Let's start there. Sure. We'll start with the low end. It means if your score is in the red, you are looking at the potential of having to make significant lifestyle changes in retirement uh, if you don't improve your retirement readiness before your last day on the job. Along that same theme, if you're in the yellow, you are doing a fair job preparing for retirement. And if you're in the green, you're probably in pretty decent shape to at least cover essentials in retirement. And the higher the score, the more discretionary dollars you'll have in retirement. 
It's funny because I was just on your website looking at your retirement tools. And if anybody goes and uses your calculator, John, it's, it uses the same colors. So this all kind of aligns to what people use on your site every day. It does. Yep, that's the point. Yeah. So anyway, back to the numbers. More people in the green. Walk me through that. It's a biennial study. We started doing it back in 2005. Uh, when we did it back then, America's retirement score was 62. Uh, so we've seen consistent progress over the years. It's the different generations and the different segments have, have shifted along the way. But the overall story is that it's improved over time across the board. What do you think the reason for that is? Is it more education? Is it the fact that over that amount of time, more people have retirement plans at work or more people are aware? Yeah, education has a lot to do with it. The biggest impact that we've seen in the study is people's savings rate has gone up. That's the result of things like increased education, people who are becoming more financially savvy, people who are taking advantage of input from advisors, all the above. Do you think that also has something to do with a lot of companies also, John, changing from opt-in where, you know, you used to get a job and you had to opt into the 401k. Now, a lot of 401ks are opt-out, right? Your employer's going to put you in the 401k unless you say no. Yeah, that's true. We, we didn't see that directly in the survey, but we do acknowledge that that's become the trend. And one of the things that we talk about in people's improving their readiness is, you know, we recommend a savings rate of 15% of income. That sounds pretty overwhelming for a lot of people, but one of the things you can do since companies are opting you in automatically, and in some cases they're even opting you into a 1% per year increase. If they're not doing that, that's something that you can do to get yourself to that 15%. You've got some different advice for people in, in different ages. I see you have some advice for millennials, some things that they need to know. Can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Uh, millennials for the second time in this year's study surpassed Gen X in their retirement readiness largely due to their increased savings rate. It went up from 7.9% to 9.7%. But then you've also got the fact that they've got the longer time horizon. And the, one of the key things about millennials is they've got access to tools that the other generations didn't have at their age. So what you just talked about with being opted into a 401k, being able to use tools like some of the tools that Fidelity has to be able to know where you are, sort of judge where you are, take the appropriate actions and increase your savings. Yeah, I like the fact that they're doing that at an earlier age too. And I'm a member of Gen X. I got to go talk to my friends, John, because I don't want millennials ahead of me. But <laughs> but what are some things that uh, my generation needs to work on? Yeah, so part of the explanation for why Gen X is score dropped. So I'm with you. I'm in Gen X as well. So we're entering peak earning years, but our earnings aren't outpacing our balances. And that's related to like different competing financial priorities, things like paying for kids to go to college. Some people are dealing with elder care, home ownership. So it's not anything to be terribly concerned about, but your opportunity when you're Gen X is to start taking, well, as we're hitting 50, start taking advantage of the catch-up contribution opportunity. Yeah, I love that, that idea. And I think a lot of Gen Xers, you know, for so long we didn't have that ability and now we're celebrating those magic birthdays where we can do it. And uh, that's a huge opportunity. What do baby boomers need to uh, work on? Yeah, boomers, they have the highest score. Their score was 87. So they're in shape to cover their essentials. The opportunities are really to sort of look at their retirement plans. So what does retirement really look like? Will there be income from employment during retirement? At what age are you going to stop working? When to take Social Security? What other income sources might you have? And then sort of 
determining how much to withdraw and from where. So they have a lot of opportunities. They're in the best shape among the generations, but they've got to really take a good hard look at what retirement really looks like. Yeah. But for them, it's like, um, you know, a lot of uh, warehouses around the world where it's just in time inventory. (laughs) Like, I feel like it's just in time knowledge that they need to get. When it comes to advisors, you guys did some work in this area, which I found really fascinating. People did better if they had a financial advisor. True. The score was six points higher if you were working with an advisor. But we also found that the score was seven points higher, regardless of whether you were working with an advisor or not, if you could answer three simple financial questions. They were centered around things like compound interest, equity risk, and inflation impact. So if you could answer those questions, whether you're working with the advisor or not, you actually scored seven points higher versus the six points you got from working with the advisor. So it's really important that people educate themselves whether or not they're working with an advisor. um, And that really has more of an impact than working with someone. I love that idea. I mean, I remember this from even going back to the business analogy, John, a lot of people, they get sick of something and they abdicate. You can't abdicate, but it's okay to delegate as long as you know what you're doing is what it sounds like. That makes sense to me. Uh, You know, the survey didn't have anything specific about that kind of responsibility delegation or abdication, Uh, but it absolutely makes sense. You need to, you need to be aware and be able to, to work with the advisor as opposed to having him work alone on your behalf. Yep. I totally, totally think so. Uh, two more quick questions. Was there anything in here that surprised you? Well, millennials surpassing Gen X was a bit of a surprise, but again, I just sort of outlined the reasons why we saw that. It's just overall very good news. The, the general theme of the, the results is that we're seeing improvement over time. Uh, the message is getting through to people that they need to know where they stand take the appropriate action. And and one of the key things we always try to get across is not to be overwhelmed by this stuff. Regardless of your situation, there are moves you can make to improve your retirement readiness uh, was really the key message that came out of all of this. And that actually, nice job, not your first rodeo, John, because that was my last question was, what's the key takeaway? (laughs) So nice work there. I'll bet you know a place, maybe a company that might have some tools people can use to work on their retirement readiness. I think I do. I think a great place to start is to go to fidelity.com slash score. Anyone can go there and get their own score. If you're a Fidelity customer, you can go a level deeper in our planning and guidance center and work and make adjustments and look and see how the little things that you can do, whether it's increasing your savings rate or uh, retiring a year later, how those things will impact your retirement readiness. And you know what? If you're walking the dog or you're on your commute, we have you covered. We'll have a link to that site on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. John, thanks for helping us. Some good news for a change about retirement. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to talk to you, Joe. Thanks. Big thanks to John for calling into the shortwave radio. And I know that John couldn't say this. He couldn't make this leap. But as you heard, OG, he wasn't uh, debating me much when I said, It's great to have a financial advisor in your corner, but clearly, however, you still got to know the basics. You still got to know what you're doing. Those people scored the best. Which I think goes to show how important very simple financial literacy is. I wish that we could spend more time, especially for younger people, you know, helping them understand and not just leave that to, you know, leave that to mom and dad to solve. I was talking to somebody earlier a week ago, just graduated college and making decent money. And he was explaining all the things that he was doing and said, well, you know, what else is there to do? And I said, nothing, just do that. 
do what you're doing for the next 30 years. He's like, well, I thought that there would be more to do. I said, there's not. And here's where you're going to follow up. If you're going to, if it's going to get screwed up, here's what's going to happen. You're going to buy a house that's too big. You're going to kind of start playing, keep up with the Joneses. You're going to do the, yeah, I can let off the gas on the savings now. And because I've got this other thing that I want to do, and I'll pick my savings up again in a year or two from now. And I said, instead, if you at 20 years old or 21 years old, set this foundation and then just go, I'm never going to, you know, now I'm going to build my spending from now on. Almost like when you go from being a resident to a full-fledged doctor, if you can keep your spending at that level, if you can build your, in this case, we were talking about his savings rate. So if you can max out your 401k, max out your Roth IRA, and then from now on say, well, any dollar that I get above that, I'll consume or I'll use for a short-term goal or I'll build a house with it or vacation property or whatever. Don't interfere with that first level of savings, which is 401k and Roth in, in, in his case. And I said, you know, you'll have $2 million by the time you're 40. You have so much more flexibility by doing it that way. And I wish that that was taught to, you know, high school kids and elementary school kids. And the hard thing, I don't know if you saw the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation annual report this last week. Um, So it's out. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. What's interesting is they talked about how they thought, you know, they invest heavily on worldwide problems and hunger and they're showing market improvement in that area, but they've been investing much longer and every bit as much money in education inside the U.S. And that isn't having a lot of effect. And the reason they said is because even educators can't come up with a consensus about the right way to teach stuff. And you look at these financial literacy courses and I see there's there's another group uh, trying to talk to high school seniors and stuff and and. I hate to be cynical, but I even saw that they were doing this and I thought, good for them. And I don't think it's going to work. That's the basic problem is how do we teach them that, OG? Uh, How do we teach that? That's probably, I mean, clearly if it's above the Gates pay grade, it's probably above ours. But, you know. Alas, we will endeavor to keep on preaching the good news from this pulpit. and uh, Absolutely will. And go from there. Yeah. Well, Cindy Zuniga runs the site Zero-Based Budgeting, but she also has a heck of a story of her own, which we're going to ask her about here in a moment. We found her, though, on Good Morning America talking about how she paid off, listen to this number, OG, $215,000 of student loans. How did she do it? We're about to find out. Cindy Zuniga coming down to the basement. Coming down the stairs to the basement, fresh off of her appearance at Good Morning America, it's her new friend, Cindy Zuniga. How are you? Hi, good, good. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm going to ask you a little bit about Good Morning America and that whole process in a little bit, but let's talk about you and your background to start off with. You said on the Good Morning America piece that you come from a family that discourages debt. Like your parents were always like, hey, if you can't afford it, don't do it. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Right. So I'm the daughter of immigrants. My parents immigrated from Ecuador and Honduras many, many years ago in the early 70s. And from where my parents came from, this concept of credit was just not really a thing, right? Like, it's like if you don't have 
the cash to pay for something, then you just can't afford it. That's just simply what it is. And so here they are, you know, coming to the United States. And I mean, credit wasn't nearly as available, you know, as it is now with just the use of a credit card um, as it was back then, but it was still pretty available. And so, you know, everything from, you know, the shady furniture stores, right, right, right. that were eager to extend credit, you know, so that you can furnish your apartment. My parents moved in and they had a mattress because that's all they could afford, um, you know, when they moved into their one bedroom apartment in the Bronx. And so I was just raised very much with this mindset of debt is not good. It's not okay. And the only exception was for education. And that wasn't that my parents, my parents see, they never phrase it as, oh, that's good debt. They just phrase them more as that. That's an opportunity for you to potentially invest in your future. If you're smart about actually taking out the debt, right? Like what kind of a degree are you going to get? Um, what are you going to plan to do after school, you know, after you graduate? So yeah, I think that that really, really shaped my upbringing because while we didn't have much by the way of financial abundance, if you will, it really, it was just, let's be able to pay the bills, put food on the table. I did at the very least grow up with a mindset of, well, I'm not going to take on more than I can handle as in, you know, I won't take on debt. <laughs> well, so it's funny. So that I hear a term, like a lot of people listening will of $215,000 of debt. That sounds yeah. like more than you can handle. But, oh but, yeah. Tell me about the process then of signing for those student loans, because I can imagine Cindy coming from that upbringing, just every time you're signing for more debt, you must have uh. this pit in your stomach. Right. So of the $215,000, about 90% of it was my law school debt. About 5%, I believe, was my undergrad debt. And the other 5% was the credit card debt. But you know what's actually funny is that when I was going to law school and I was taking out quite literally like $50,000 each year, law school is three years. For me, it was just more of like, well, this is just what I have to do. You know, I didn't really have that voice in my head of like, oh no, don't do it. Don't do it. It was more of a, I need to do this if I want to become an attorney. Right. And for me, that was quite literally the situation, right? I could not ask my parents for money. I could not work while I was going to law school just because I knew I wanted to be laser focused on my grades and in excelling in school. And so oddly enough, there wasn't really that feeling of, I think, hesitation or even guilt when I was taking on the law school debt because I was so confident that I would be able to excel and get a well-paying job. You know, I didn't know what kind of a job exactly, but I think that that's why I wasn't as hesitant. Now, the credit card debt, that is not something that my parents would approve of at all. But there were a lot of things that came up during law school and even especially in the time between when I graduated law school and when I actually started my job where I didn't have any income coming in at all. And so I did take on quite a bit of credit card debt, I think to the tune of about $11,000. And that's something that certainly my parents would not have supported. <laughs> everybody has this point, Cindy, or but not everybody, but most people where they just go, something's got to change. Like, and they mm -hmm. know exactly where they were. Like I know where I was. I remember answering yeah. the phone, another debt collector calling me and me going, you know what? I can't live this anymore. I have something's got to change. Do you remember where you were when you went, you know what? I've got to do things differently. 
I think it was either very late 2016, like December or January 2017. And I was in my apartment with my boyfriend and I opened up my laptop and I saw that my uh, loan servicer had issued the statement of how much interest I had paid for my student loans that first year that I was paying it off, which was 2016. And I saw, as I mentioned on the Good Morning America segment, that of the $24,000 that I paid off that first year, $4,000 went to the principal and $20,000 went to the interest. You said you cried. I did. I was so defeated. I was so angry. I was frustrated. I was thinking to myself, I've been set up to fail. I'm never going to pay off this debt. It's going to continue accumulating you know, I ran the numbers on like a, a student loan calculator or something like that. And I think that the total amount that I would have spent on my student loans, the say, I think it was 160000 total that I had taken out was something about like $250,000. So we're talking nearly $90,000 of just interest, assuming that I paid off the debt within the 10-year time frame. Now, if I had extended that you know, time period, of course, it would be a lot more than that. But, you know, to see that approximately $90,000 potentially would be going to interest. I mean, that's more money than my family ever saw in a year. Well, that's what I was thinking as you were saying that $90,000 more than a lot of people make in a year. Yeah. I mean, significantly more. And so it was just a punch in the pit of my stomach that I felt of, I need to figure this out. Right. And I think there was also some shame because, you know, here I was, you know, I I did graduate very fortunately at the top 10% of my class, of my law school class. I had a great job, a great stream of income coming in from obviously that job. And yet I did not know the first thing actually about money management. And that was really embarrassing to me because I didn't know why or how that happened. And that is what lit the fire within me of, okay, it's time to figure this out. I want to stop right there, Cindy, because a lot of times I hear financial shows not talk about this enough, which is that you had done kind of an ROI on the student debt, but you also made it work. I mean, you, you just said you were fortunate to be in the top 10%. I would say you probably worked your ass off. To, to try yeah. to in the, <laughs> I, I, I would say so. <laughs> in the top 10%. Don't get me wrong. There's, there is some luck there, but I think it was a famous yeah. football coach who said the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. So there is some luck, but still working hard to get the good job so that you're able to pay off the student loan. It feels like there's two parts. You sign on the line for $215,000 of debt, then you work your butt off and hopefully the work pays off. And it sounds like Do you remember how much approximately you were making at that time? So I've made a six-figure income since I was 26 years old. And the market at the time starting salary was $160,000, which fun fact is the first time I actually disclosed that. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Well, I'll tell you, (laughs) that's the number one thing that people write to me about is they're like, okay, people call into Dave Ramsey or whoever, and they always say, hey, I paid off a bunch of debt in a short amount of time. And they're like, well, how much money were they working with? Which on one hand, I see that. On the other hand, I feel like people don't want to take responsibility And they go, well, they were making X amount of money, which drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the reason why I don't 
typically share my numbers. I, I don't share my current numbers, um, more just for privacy reasons, but I will share, you know, what I, I started with when I graduated law school is because I am very well aware and mindful of the financial privilege that I do have. And I think that that comes also from being the daughter of immigrants that was raised in a very low income community in the Bronx. With that said, I think another reason why I don't try to put my personal numbers as far as income is concerned at the forefront of the conversation is because I don't want that to be where the conversation ends. Right. I I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I want to ask about your inspiration that I saw on your website because I found this really cool. We have mm-hmm. people that have all different starting points on the show all the time, which I find to be uh, fascinating and really fun to see the diversity of not just ages and different backgrounds people have, but different amounts of money that they start with, different you know families, all kinds of stuff. You said that you got inspired by going to the internet and you dug in. You especially were interested in women of color and they spoke to you. And I'm wondering, because I always wonder where people get their inspiration from, who was it that really inspired you? Which people specifically? Are there any you can call out? Yeah. So there were actually a handful that really, really inspired me. And one of them was uh, Bola Sukumbi, who's the founder of Clever Girl Finance. Uh, Another is uh, Janelle Espinal, who's the founder of Miss Be Helpful. She runs a great YouTube channel. And then Jamila Soufrant, who's the founder of Journey to Launch podcast. And these are all women of color that have been very, very open about their journeys but also their desire to uplift young millennial women and specifically women of color, because it is important to see that representation, right? It is important to see that there's either someone that looks like you or someone that has a similar life experience as you do. And so I think for me, that was really important because A lot of the content creators that I saw, you know, it was great, but a lot of them had either an interest in tech or they were able to benefit from the San Francisco boom, the tech boom that's going on and everything. And that's beautiful, right? That's wonderful. But I didn't see that kind of story that I could connect with. And so that really, really inspired me and also just pushed me to create the content that I've been creating since I've been on my journey. I love that. And by the way, if you're listening to this, two of the people that Cindy just mentioned have been on the show and we'll link to their interviews. Jamila is one of our favorite people. And uh, she's great. Bola's story. She told her story when uh, she came on and her story is just so fascinating with her mom and her mom empowering her was just so cool. We'll link to those in our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com for people that want to check them out. All right. So back to your journey. So now you're inspired. You've listened to people like Jamila people like Bola, and you start putting things together. Where did you begin? As a practical matter, I refinanced my student loans. I read a lot about refinancing and how basically you'd take on this new loan with a private lender that would pay off your current existing loans, whether they be private, federal, And you would now have a lower interest rate with this private lender. And that was really important to me because as we discussed, the interest was just really what smacked me in the face. And so I went from having roughly an average of a 9% interest on my student loans to about 4%. 
which was really, really great. And I also shrunk the time frame from 10 years to five years by refinancing. For the minimum payment, like the minimum yeah. that they would take. So yes. you pushed that up and got the interest rate down. It feels like, it feels like when I hear you say that, Cindy, like you took your anger at the 90,000 bucks and yeah. channeled it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I had to, I had to, because I knew, and, and, you know, something that I appreciate about listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos is when people actually give the concrete steps that yeah. they took yeah, and not just speak in the abstract. And for me, the very first thing I did was I researched various student loan refinancing companies and I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then after that came, you know, actually confronting all of my numbers and really creating a budget, right? Like seeing where was my money going? How much was I actually spending on dining out? And so I actually went back to my credit card statements, my debit card transactions, and I took out different colored highlighters and I highlighted how much was I spending on Ubers, on dining out, on groceries, on basically everything that wasn't my fixed expenses, because I knew what I was paying towards my fixed expenses. It's those variable expenses that will get you and that could ruin your budget. And um, next, confront all of my numbers, including all of my expenses. That money, obviously now you got a much bigger payment toward your student loan and you weren't happy with five years. You paid it off in two, which means there was a lot of money that was- Four years, actually. Or or in four years, I'm sorry. Yeah, four years. See, Mm -hmm. I shrunk it even more. (laughs) (laughs) Two years would have been great, but four years. (laughs) Hey, I'll just lie to make it a better story. (laughs) But you paid it off in four years. So that money was going somewhere. Where did you find mostly that you were now cutting stuff out of your budget that you've been spending before? Shopping. I was really that kind of person that I would walk into like a Sephora and I'm not just for the record, I'm not really big on makeup. Anyone that follows me will see that. (laughs) And I mean, I was spending like $200 easily, easily without hesitation. I would go shopping and easily purchase three, four pairs of shoes at a time. Shopping was really a big part of it where, I mean, if you're mindlessly spending really, you know, four to $500 in a month, you know, we're talking about five, $6,000 in a year. That's a big chunk of change. Another area was dining out, not really with the lunch thing. I never had a problem with bringing my lunch from home because it's a habit I developed while I was in law school because I actually could not afford to purchase food in like lower Manhattan. That's not, you know, I I was not so fortunate. So I actually learned how to meal prep while I was in law school. Um, So that wasn't really an issue, but more so, you know, the going to brunch with girlfriends, going to um, get dinner after work, things like that, that you can easily spend another couple hundred dollars a month. I mean, before you know it, we're really at about like a thousand easily Mm. that could be cut down. Uh, So just being mindful of that, I think was really key. Did that affect your friendships, cutting that out? No, it didn't. I was really fortunate in that I really found out who my friends were while I was in law school. (laughs) As you can imagine, I mean, I was a big nerd in law school. I still am a big nerd. But, you know, in law school, I was that kid that, you know, oh, let's go out to do X, Y, Z. And it's like, actually, no, I'd rather review my cases and, you know, things like that. So my my readings. And 
I was able to see who not only in law school, but also out of law school was like my true friend. And so when I decided to go on the debt-free journey and there were things like, hey, can we just go to that, you know, can we go to the Met instead, right? The Met is a big museum here in New York City that's free. Like you can do, it's a donation based. And so you can give, you know, whatever you have in your heart to give. I'll never forget, actually, one day, my girlfriends, um, three of my really close girlfriends from law school, they said, oh, let's go out to eat and let's get drinks after and everything. And I told them, actually, you know, I'm doing like a no spend challenge. So would you mind if maybe we just have like some wine at one of their apartments? And they were like, yeah, let's do that instead. Would you mind if I drank your wine? <laughs> no, no, no. I actually had a bottle of wine here in my apartment. Oh, um, I'm not a big drinker. I actually brought that, brought some snacks. The other girls each brought something too. And we just hung out. And I think it actually made our friendship closer because we were able to bond without needing to spend yeah. tons of money. And I also think that they appreciated it too, just because it was a budget-friendly activity. And then in the summer, honestly, there's so many free things to do here in New York City that it's really easy to just, you know, go to a really nice park or again, museums or outdoor exhibits. And so, you know, I really took advantage of that. So I'm, I'm pretty well versed on the free things to do in New York, honestly. When did you first start zero-based budgeting? Not the website that you have now that you're known for, mm-hmm. but when did you first hear about it and start implementing it in your life? Yeah. So I first heard about it through Dave Ramsey who was one of the first personal finance gurus that I came across. You know, he had this really odd method of budgeting that he was speaking about that I had never really heard of. I did research and I saw that other content creators were also talking about it. So I started in 2017. And the reason was because I really wanted to know exactly where all of my money was going. When I first started it, I hated it. I was awful (laughs) at it. It took me about four months to even get used to it because the first few months I was blowing through my budget. I was like, (laughs) I'm so bad at this. I don't know, you know, how to get this done. But I had a mission. I wanted to be debt free. I wanted to become more financially literate. I wanted to start investing and everything like that. And so I made it work. And I started tracking at the end of every single day. I took two minutes while I waited for uh, the train at the end of the day, at the end of the workday on the platform, I would just punch in really quickly. I would ask myself, Cindy, what did you spend money on today? Okay, great. Plug it in. I used Dave Ramsey's app, the Every Dollar app for yeah. my zero-based budgeting. And I would just plug in my transactions. And I developed that discipline. Even now, you know, years later, I'm debt-free. I still do the same thing just because it's a habit. It's a habit <laughs> now. Point. It's a great habit. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. at this point, well, you see it on your website, Cindy, but now it's not a constraint. It feels to me like it frees you up. Yes. Yes. Because what, and this is what I tell my clients is that when you create an intentional budget where you prioritize what you actually value, you get to give yourself the permission to spend X amount on X areas. So for example, if you want to designate, um, I don't know, let's say $200 on dining out a month. That is okay. You have the permission to spend those $200 on dining out. You don't have to say, oh, well, no, it's not in my budget. I mean, 
you're going to have to be aware of, okay, I spent 30 here, 40 there, 10 here. You know, yes, you have to be mindful of that, but that's $200 that you are now allowed to spend on that area. Same goes for travel or, you know, if you want to get like a facial or pedicure or whatever it is, put it in the budget. It removes the guilt and the shame from spending, honestly. The other thing I found too, to your point, is that when I do those things, they're so much more intentional and so much more fun. Like now when I go out to a restaurant and eat, instead of it being just Tuesday and I'm at another restaurant, now I'm at a restaurant that I planned and I'm having so much fun because I'm actually being served food that somebody else cooked, which is not what I do every day anymore. Like it makes Mm -hmm. these things that used to be special so much more special again. Yes, absolutely. Because I think that you treat it more as like an experience that you were intentional about as opposed to something that kind of just happened. You spent money on And then when you get back home, you're like, oh, crap. (laughs) Like what happened there? Yeah, Yeah, what I do. (laughs) All right. There is an elephant in the room. I don't know if you know this, but you were on one of the biggest morning shows in America. Spoiler. (laughs) That was a great stepping stone, I'm sure, for coming down to the basement, Cindy. Like you're like just getting warmed up by going on this Good Morning America program. I'm imagining like an email or a phone call. Do you remember where you were when they got in touch with you? Yeah, I was at work. I saw my email and long story short, I was connected to the producers at Good Morning America through my good friend Bola, uh, the founder of Clever Girl Finance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they were doing a segment on how social media is being used in various areas of your life, right? As far as wellness is concerned, it could be health, it could be personal finance, food, anything like that. And so, that segment was on personal finance. And so I was connected with the producer of Good Morning America, featured in a segment that really highlighted Bola and her story. And then a couple weeks later had my own segment, which was really, it was really, really cool and still surreal to think (laughs) about it. Uh, But it was really, it was good. It was a great experience. It came out great. We're going to link to the video. We'll put the video up on our show notes page if they'll let us. We'll see. But if not, we'll link to it. But it's great. It's very succinct. It's really cool. But I I can just imagine is there... As you're getting ready and the lights are shining on you, it's it's like the first time that happened with me, like your heart's beating 9,000 oh, yeah. miles an hour. Like, I don't even remember what I said. And you, I, I don't either. That's <laughs> why I went. Even when I saw the segment, I was like, oh, wow, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> like, that sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you seem to be very calm, cool, and collected when you did it, but. Not the case? Uh, No, not the behind the scenes. (laughs) Behind the scenes, my heart was racing. My palms were sweaty. I was so nervous. It was, you know, my first time doing this kind of a thing. I had been featured a few months back on Telemundo, which is a Spanish Spanish network television uh, on on a Sunday morning show. And same thing for that one. I mean, for that one, I was really nervous because I was like, how do you say budget in Spanish? <laughs> you know, like it was really, so it was, it was quite nerve wracking too. But this one, I mean, you know, Good Morning America is a show that 
I, I mean, people from all around the country watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, from all different backgrounds. And so I was really nervous, but the producer was really great. And, the, you know, so was the, the camera crew. And so they made everything seem, I think, a lot warmer and, you know, definitely eased my nerves. Gertrude and Taylor on our team saw it and pointed out to me and go, we got to have her on. And we were so, we were so thrilled, (laughs) Cindy, when you would come talk to me. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Well, let's talk about your coaching for a second because you coach people to do what you do. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I started my coaching business in late 2018, just because very informally, I just had friends and family that started reaching out to me and said, Hey, can you look at, take a look at my finances and, you know, maybe give me some tips I formally started it in early 2019 last year, um, you know, registered LLC and all of that, because I started seeing the need for people to feel like they're sitting with a girlfriend over a cup of coffee and just chatting about finances. I wanted to make that approachable, right? I am very clear with my clients. I'm not a financial advisor. I don't sell anything, right? You basically pay for a session with me. I take a look over your finances. We talk about your goals and we create a very concrete plan to achieve those goals. I think I just had my, maybe it was like 120th client this weekend. And it's really great because most of my clients are young women, but most are women, young women of color, right? And that goes back to why I started creating the content that I do is because I really hope to speak to people, but particular people that might have that story of, you know, they're the child of immigrants, that they were raised in low-income communities, that maybe that they're their parents' retirement plan, right? Like these are really tough issues that we deal with in my community. And because I've kind of opened the space of a no judgment, just let's chat about your credit card debt, your student loans, how you can best approach all of this has been great. Not obviously just for my clients, but for me too. And for my own personal growth. So yeah, it's something really exciting that I do. I love being, you know, the, a personal finance coach. It's really fun. And it's something that, yeah, I hope to continue building. We'll link to your practice and your awesome site on our show notes page also at stackybenjamins.com. Cindy, it was so great getting to know you. Congratulations oh, on all the so success. Much, yeah. What an inspiring story, man. I'm fired up. Let's go. <laughs> let's go do something cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for having me. I, I really appreciate it. trivia fans i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug just keeping it real here with you and while i love mint chocolate as much as the next guy don't you think it's time for some innovation in this space joe and og talked about fintech today so what gives on the mint choco tech front everyone knows that innovations in mail created email and New ways of shopping created home delivery online experiences and online sports betting created way more broke people in this neighborhood. Just imagine what had happened if someone disrupted the boring, staid mint chocolate industry. Am I right? (laughs) So here's my idea. Ready? Let's just keep this between us, okay? I mean, what if I combined chocolate with mint toothpaste? Those are two flavors that have longed to be together. So now you can clean your teeth while you enjoy your favorite treat. And it tastes totally naturally minty. 
I can only imagine how rich old Doug's going to be once this one takes off. All right, while I go figure out the right proportions, you can nibble on this trivia piece. Ready? What's the top-selling candy treat here in the U.S.? I'll be back with your answer right after this. Well, I have to tell you that when we just recently hired a couple of phenomenal producers to help us try to find a way to continue making the podcast better all the time, we wondered a few things that I'm sure if you're hiring, you wonder, will we find good applicants to choose from? Where will we find them? What about education and experience? I know my brother for his company tried many different sources at first and was very frustrated because of the fact that he didn't know where to find good people. So how will you know? So how will you know if you've made the right hire? Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes and use screener questions to help create your short list of applications fast. Sponsored jobs on Indeed accelerate the hiring process even further boosting your post with premium placement, relevant search results, helping you reach even more applicants. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today at Indeed.com to find out why more than 3 million companies use Indeed for hiring. That's Indeed.com forward slash SB. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I think I've pulled it off. There is no way you doubted me, did you? I mean, check it out. The the, the perfect chocolate treat. Uh, oh, uh, I forgot this isn't a video cast thing. Someone actually should get on that. And there's some innovation opportunity right there. You could, like, watch stuff, oh, like, even on your phone. That would be super innovative. I'd call it something like um, TV tube for you or... Like um, TV for your tube. Well, that's that's a whole different thing. I'm busy. I can't create everything. You're going to just have to use your imagination because I'm confident that 10 out of 10 dentists will recommend Doug's patented chocolate toothpaste as their minty chocolate treat of choice. I'm going to be rich. Which reminds me, here's your delightfully rich trivia answer. See how I did that? The question was this. What is the top-selling candy treat here in the U.S.? And uh, here's why we need innovation. This particular treat has been around since 1941 and managed to pull in a whopping $406 million in 2015. So, like, there's, like it, it's been around for so long, nobody's innovating this stuff. You probably already guessed what it was, right? I mean, you guessed M&M's. Easy. One of my easiest trivia questions ever. You get no points for this. Anyway, enjoy your limited time at number one M&M's because... Doug's minty chocolate toothpaste is coming for you. See ya. I think Kit Kat needs to get to that throne before Doug's minty toothpaste chocolate. You want a Kit Kat toothpaste? Or the oh, Kit Kat toothpaste. If, 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 we if we were going to go chocolate and toothpaste, I got to go back to the Nestle Crunch. And maybe I'm more addicted to Nestle Crunch than I was because of that huge box of 
Nestle Crunch Bars I got. I have a candy favor to ask also, but I will ask it a little bit later. I deal. Right now, you know what I'm going to ask? But I got it right. I got Doug's trivia right. Uh, you did get it right. Nice job. Hey, uh, I'm going to ask if we can throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Everybody, Do it. Everybody's doing it. Your friends at Haven Lifeline Insurance Agency put what you value first. Are you daring me? Are you daring me to do this? I, I, I double dog dare you. Put what you value first, OG. Go ahead. Uh, well, as we are still on the Valentine's kick and we're on chocolate uh, uh, and mint, hey, you can't go wrong with chocolate mint ice cream. Maybe a little Andes mints, those little Andes mints after dinner mints. Those are pretty good. Every time. We go to Olive Garden, I want like seven of them. I'm like, hey, you can just leave that whole bag here. <laughs> That'll make up for the fact that I just ate Olive Garden. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No offense, Olive Garden. Just kidding. Olive the Garden. Little, there's some garlic. They do use a smidge of garlic from time to time in their mm, Italian it is dishes. Chicken scampi from Olive Garden. I don't care what microwave it came from. I don't. You don't have to tell me. I still like it. Plus a glass of that cheap rosé wine. Mm. In and out of there for 12 bucks and I'm a little bit buzzed and full of uh, microwave and You can carbs. go run, run a marathon because you've got so many carbs in you. <laughs> <laughs> and I still won't burn it all off. It's actually your loved ones and your time is what you should value first. That's why Haven Life may buy in quality term life insurance actually simple, take very little time because their application's simple. It's all online. You get an instant coverage decision. You don't have to go through what OG and I know about very well, which is, man, back in the day when I was an advisor, it took forever to do life insurance. There's what? some trickle down going on in oh. terms of speeding this up in this space, but there's a long way to go. They still got a long way. All policies issued by Mass Mutual, more than 160 year old insurer. Today, uh, by the way, it's, it's stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life and get that stuff done. Uh, today, <laughs> today, I should look at these ahead of time. Today, uh, we're throwing out the lifeline to this is what it says Andre, the NFL dude. Say hi, Andre. Hey, Joe and OG, love your show, listen to it all the time. My name's Andre from Vegas, and I just wanted to just throw something out to you guys. So we've got this new Raiders stadium coming, and then we had this golden match of four, and, and the hockey tickets and everything went through the roof, and it looks like the Raiders are going to do the same thing. So you've got these personal seat licenses, and, you know, they, they cost X amount of money, and obviously, you know, they, they last forever, essentially. So what I did was not wanting to be priced out of the complete market. I peeled off of some part of my bond portfolio and just bought some PSLs with it. The crazy thing is, is that I've been offered way over the money that I had spent for them for the PSLs that I've already purchased. So I didn't plan to sell them. This is one of those things that I plan to keep for, you know, over 10 years because that was my horizon for what I had in my portfolio. So what I was thinking was, for you guys being money nerds out there, was there any kind of tracking for people buying stadium PSLs or the worst PSLs? I know you guys do art and farms and tractors or whatever you do out there. <laughs> Just wondering what you guys have out there for stadium PSLs. Love the show once again, and you know, thanks for being there. Andre, that is, that is very funny. 
Man, if we got fintech, maybe Andre's the next big fintech founder instead of like Acre Trader doing the farming stuff or, uh, or, um, you can own one one hundredth of the 50 yard line seat at AT&T Stadium. <laughs> That's right. And it'll only cost you $26,000. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I don't know anybody. So I don't know who's of any that. sort of tracking tool for any of this. It seems to me that the, that the volatility of this particular seat or these seats will largely determine or largely be determined by the quality of the product on the field. You know, when your football team's not doing so great, you can get tickets pretty cheaply. When they're doing fantastic, it's a little more difficult. You know, I'm thinking about um, my wife's a Michigan grad, and all through the 90s and into the early parts of the 2000s, the wait list to get Michigan football tickets were years and years and years. You know, you put your you put your name in as soon as you became an alumni, and maybe 20 years from now you'd get a, offered a ticket. Well, then they started sucking real bad, and uh, all of a sudden those tickets came available pretty quickly. So I wonder if that's going to be the similar thing. If you've made some pretty good money on the seat license for the Raiders coming to Vegas, I wonder if it doesn't make sense to sell that and then use the proceeds to go to like a game or two a year for like the next 20 years. And I don't know, obviously, how much you've paid for them or what it's worth, but but sometimes you can get tickets to games or concerts or all that sort of stuff pretty cheaply yeah. rather than having to pay the whole VIG. I know when we moved to uh, Dallas, we did the tour at Cowboy Stadium and, you know, the guy's giving us the tour and all that sort of stuff. And we briefly thought about it just to kind of be one with the one with the community, you know, go Cowboys. And then the guy rolled out how much it costs. And he's like, well, you know, you want four tickets because at the time we had four people in our family. He's like, oh, you know, these nice club level seats will be $10,000. Did you want a parking pass with that? That'll be another thousand. And all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, I'm not spending $11,000 a year on cowboy tickets. Like I'll just go once a year and spend 50 bucks a ticket or 80 bucks a ticket or whatever it is to go. So if you're fortunate enough to have scooped them up at a low price, you might take your winnings and go. Of course, Tom Brady signs with the Raiders. Bam. Watch out. Super bam, Bowl bam. contender immediately. Yeah. So. Looking through a couple things on this, Andre, number one is, you know, when it comes to looking at sports teams as companies, of course, the Boston Celtics were at one point a publicly traded company that ended way back in 2003, but uh, they went public in, in 1986 for 1850 a share. And then when they were bought out, it was at 27 dollars a share not a very good roi not not over that long time Three frame decades. Yeah, yeah that's that two that's decades a decade and a half right so not that fantastic looking at psl's a report from april 29th on nbc sports website profootballtalk.nbcsports.com uh, written by Shireen Williams april 29th of last year fans have defaulted on about 30 million dollars of personal seat licenses since Mercedes-Benz Stadium opened in 2017. So to your point that it really depends on the product on the field. Um, yeah, but the Falcons, I was going to say that that doesn't go that way. Yeah, well, the, I guess it would. Yeah, the Falcons did kind of suck lately. Yeah, but Falcons early on there were great, were fantastic. Their and, downfall came when they were ahead by 25 points in the Super Bowl and Tom Brady beat them. 
It says that they're continuing. Yeah. They're <laughs> they're continuing. Uh, Falcon CEO Greg Beatles told uh, the ACJ at that time that the decline of 6,632 seat licenses did not include new sales made since then. And they said they're going to continue to sell new ones, which almost makes it sound like, you know, depending on, on what happens here, it could be a case to some degree like timeshares where you're constantly competing against people making new ones. If, if people are defaulting on their personal seat licenses and they're competing against the Falcons selling you new ones, yeah, but I think the Falcons are going to be selling them at a higher rate as the years go on. So there is some, I think, validity into if you're going to hold them for, he said, 10 years, I think that might be too short. But if if it was something where, you know, you're going to hold them for a long period of time, I mean, unless the sport goes away, which is a thing, that's the downside that you've got to be thinking about. You know, it costs how much more to take a family to you know, a ball game than it did 20 years ago. How much more does it cost to take a family to a football game, to a baseball game, to a soccer match, whatever? I don't think that you're going to see the trend of those prices go no. anywhere but up. So, you know, it's a nice speculative play. I like it. Well, and here's what to cap that is. I remember, you know, our conversation with David Stein back this fall. It is a bet, Andre. I mean, it's it's not an investment. Well, he's in Vegas, so right. It's not an investment. It's a bet. It is a bet. It's not an investment. I mean, investment is where you know what the underlying value really is, and the underlying value here is going to vary widely. Like pinning that down is well, incredibly an difficult. Investment has to have an organization that's producing. It's producing something. It has to produce income. It has to produce goodwill. And it's impossible to measure. I mean, Gillette razor blades, we know how much money they make. AT&T, we know how much DirecTV costs and how much money they make. Disney, we know how much ticket sales they have. A seat license is nothing more than just what the whim of the supply and demand curve looks like at that moment based on a lot of factors. So, How did they ever get away with that? Like, We should totally start doing that in the basement, selling personal seat licenses for... Uh you know, you could sit and listen. You can listen to it, but you gotta you gotta pay a, a licensing fee. Everyone, a hundred people get to listen to the show if they pay a personal seat license, and, and and you get to listen to the show. You could sell it to somebody else, but you can't. Wouldn't that suck? Well, you can listen like you can listen first. Like you can have the good seats by listening first, and then <laughs> like you wanna if you wanna listen to today's show like next Thursday, that's like sitting in the nosebleeds. Right. You still pay a seat license fee; it's only fifty bucks. <laughs> but if you wanna hear it at six a.m. on Wednesday, that's twenty eight thousand. That stuff cracks me up, man. We were talking about Disney raising their prices again, and uh, yeah. every February. Yeah, and while that's super expensive, somebody said. Our friend Victor said that uh, he would rather have like they have for the highway system. I don't know why in the highway system, it doesn't bother me that much. It kind of does bother me a little bit. I feel like all of our taxpayer dollars go to build that road, but only, you know, people that feel like they can afford that can do that. And I don't really want to get into that. But it, toll booths? Where you've got toll lanes versus free lanes. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and you could decide. The that, dynamic toll lanes. Yeah, yeah, that still doesn't bother me as much as creating two different types of, 
of visitors to these parks. Because Victor said, he's like, I wish they'd keep it the same and instead like charge for the fast pass and charge for the expanded experience. Man, I go to, I go to Universal. They do that though. They have a program that you can buy like the concierge level program. They don't advertise. No, you can buy. no but Universal does. And it drives me crazy that if I want to have, if I want to get into the park, just tell me what I got to pay to have a good time for the day. And then everybody gets to use the fast pass system, but at universal, yeah. at universal or Cedar point, a lot of the regional parks, six flags, I can buy the base ticket or I can pay an arm and a leg more so that I get to bypass everybody. So I have to decide I have a day off work and I'm just trying to have some fun with my family. I don't want it rubbed in my face all day that I'm not as rich as that dude walking by me on every damn ride. It drives me crazy. I can tell. It just, it just, I don't know. I, I haven't I, been to Cedar Point in a long time, but my, my, my cousin did tell me about that new system they got there where you can, yeah. you know, you get the, the thing. He's like, it's so awesome. You get to skip the line in front of everybody. <laughs> All that we did, we just picked a day. Well, we talked about this last year. We picked a day last summer because my sister really wanted to go. We picked a day. We looked at, there's a lot of things out there you can go to. We picked a day where the park wasn't that full. And we didn't have to do that. And it was, we, we got on rides very quick just by doing a little creative planning ahead of time, like save, save some money. I've heard you can also do that with Universal as well. Just go into the calendar. And if, if your schedule's flexible enough, just find a day that that extra bag of money doesn't matter. Anyway. Or go, or go during spring break and you will need that extra bag of money and a whole bunch of patience too, for that matter. That took a right turn, Andre, didn't it? Andre's like, oh, are we talking about seat licenses anymore about, or the price of fast passes? Big thanks for the question, Andre. We don't know of any of that, but I think we both had some opinions, OG especially, whose opinion means way more than mine. So there you go. That's going to do it. Right. That's going to do it for today. By the way, if you'd like to call the lifeline, it's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail to leave your question for OG and I. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Man, what a fantastic time talking to Cindy and John. Coming up on Friday, a fantastic roundtable coming. We'll have... Don't say fantastic again. No. Say, say something else. Did, did I say fantastic 26 times? Like six times in a row. Have yeah. I? It's going to be brilliant. A brilliantly fantastic. Is that better? Oh, boy. Nope. The world's best. Amazing. Think of a new adjective Incredible. to describe How about just marginally okay <laughs> just have some truth in advertising for once a little bit better than meh roundtable <laughs> coming up on coming up on friday as uh chelsea brennan the one and only chelsea brennan joins us and doc g from the what's up next podcast so on that note by the way if you are looking for better financial help in your corner og and his team are taking clients so head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash og while the doors are open here for a little bit longer all right that's going to do it. Doug, take it from your man. What should we have learned today? Yeah, sure thing, Joe. I, what's that? Oh, right, right, right. My announcer voice. Sorry. Sure thing, Joe. What should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Cindy. Money can be stressful, but it doesn't have to be. Creating an intentional plan for your finances can be as easy as sitting down with a friend over a, a cup of coffee. Made at home, of course. And coming up with a plan. Second, Take some advice from John at Fidelity. Saving? By getting educated and maybe getting some help, you can make your goals a reality. But the big lesson? 
turns out Doug's chocolate toothpaste is not very easy on the old digestive track, which brings up another idea. Turns out the laxative industry is about to get innovated on as I bring my invention to them and rock everybody's world and lower GI system. Special thanks to Cindy Zuniga for stopping by the basement. You can learn more by heading over to zero-basedbudget.com. Also, thanks to John Boroff from Fidelity for stopping by. Head over to our show notes page to learn more about how Americans are doing for retirement savings. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahide, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Say, uh, amazing Steve Stewart, is, is Joe letting mom write the scripts or something? He knows I hate these words like, like the, well, like the words like treats and yummy and super and uh, it's driving me crazy. Next thing I know, he's going to have like moist in there and picnic and uh, words everybody hates. He's uh, driving me crazy. Dance story boy. I'm trying to remember what we're going to talk about. Oh, candy. Yes. So this is a personal request. You were talking about, uh, you know, your Nestle's candy and this, I swear hand to God, this did not come out of the fact that Joe got a box of Nestle's chocolates and I did not, (laughs) although I would take it, but I need a little help because it's, I I live kind of far away from Canada now And I have a son who has a peanut allergy. And in Canada, allegedly, they have peanut-free Kit Kats. Peanut-free Kit Kats? Yes. So there's different manufacturing there. There's different something or another. But uh, I would really like it if someone got in touch with me who lives in or near Canada and um, said whether or not that's true if they could confirm that. And secondly, if it is true, I will be happy to pay the freight for a copious amount of peanut free Kit Kats mailed to, uh, William on behalf of 
the Stacking Benjamins community. So if there's anybody who is listening who's a Canadian who can help with that, that would be swell. Because apparently, I, I guess he's never had a KitKat before. Never. And he's, oh. a, he's aware that they uh, they exist in Canada. And uh, anyways, so oh boy. He, he brought it up. He brought it up. And, and I went, oh, yeah, whatever. And then I thought, like, how the hell am I going to get KitKats from Canada? And then I thought, oh, yeah, there's this thing that I do three day, three times a week. <laughs> can you, you might know a Canadian, or a Canadian might know you. I might, I might know somebody that can help yes. or somebody might know me. So, but anyway. could you see, could you see somebody at the border with the, with the, so, um, oh, uh, we did that. Uh, no, we did that. Where are you headed? Um, the U S I'm going to Joe's mom's basement. Uh, do you have anything to declare? <sighs> I got a bunch of Kit Kats in the back. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what happened. We did that when we lived in Michigan. So William has had a peanut allergy for, you know, since he was a baby. And at Halloween time, we drove across the border to go to the grocery store in Windsor. And we go through the border. No big deal. Get our candy. The whole big, I mean, we're the trunks loaded with candy from Ontario. And we come back like almost immediately. I mean, how long does it take to go to the grocery store? Right. It's a half hour process. So we come back through immigration again at the border, they're like, uh, did you forget something? Like, what were you doing that you've been in Canada for 11 minutes? I'm like, oh, yeah, we went to the grocery store. My son has a peanut allergy. So and the guy was like, uh-huh, open the trunk. <laughs> I mean, he was he was like, sure he does, buddy. Let's take a look at what's going on really here. And, uh, yeah, they went through the whole, uh, the whole trunk of the car. You know, I mean, we had the receipts and the grocery. I mean, it's just a grocery trip, basically, but full of candy. So my friend Danny back in middle school was the youngest of nine kids. And uh, they would always on the 4th of July head to Canada and this lake up along the the east shore of uh, Lake Huron. And just this beautiful, beautiful park. But but they went across the border and uh, the border guard in, into Canada said, uh so you have anything to declare? And dad just looks at the border guy and says, nope. And Danny said, but dad, what about all these fireworks in the back? And no, he didn't. He did. He oh did. man. Yes. He, he told that story to me in eighth grade that he did that when he was in like fourth grade. And his dad just obviously then was like, dude, well, other than the fireworks, I mean, I don't have to declare anything. <laughs> other than the fireworks, I'm, I'm good. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life, 
and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.